Hey everyone, Lonnie here to let you know that we have a special treat waiting for you at the end of the episode today. Remember when we were discussing Adam a few weeks back and I very inexpertly talked a little bit about Frankenstein, which I know nothing about? Well, Dr. Paul Moffat of ClockworksAcademy.com was so kind as to record us a little mini lecture on Frankenstein relating back to Adam on Buffy. So don't turn the show off when you hear the music at the end. It is worth it. Also, go visit ClockworksAcademy.com to check out Dr. Moffat's Frankenstein course and other courses. And you can follow him on Twitter at Dr. Moffat with Dr. Spelled Out, two F's, two T's. All right. Now on with the show. Welcome to Still Pretty, a Buffy the Vampire Slayer podcast from Chipperish Media. I'm film scholar and Mr. Evil Plan face stealer, Noelle LaCroix. <laughs> and I'm story expert and evil robot constructed from evil parts that look like me, designed to do evil, Lonnie Diane Rich. And we're here today to talk about The Replacement, the third episode of season five. The Replacement aired on October 10th, 2000 and was written by Jane Espenson and directed by James A. Contner. As y'all know, we are a fully spoiled Buffy podcast. That means we may talk about anything in Buffy from any part of the show at any time. So be prepared. Make sure you've already watched before you listen to us. Bad hours, frequent bruising, cranky monsters. Let's go on patrol. replacement, Xander's basement living situation becomes untenable, so the gang goes with him to check out a cool apartment. We can have the Scooby meetings in the living room, and, and Giles can explain the boring things over there. But he can't really afford it. Anya gets upset because despite the fact that she has an apartment of her own, and presumably some kind of job or demon pension to keep her living in some manner of style based on her hair, makeup, and clothes, she only exists on the show when she's in his crappy basement. And I don't really feel like taking a tour of beautiful things that I can't have. At the magic shop, a glowy-eyed demon looking for the Slayer hits Giles in the head with a glowy stick and leaves. Well, I'm not dead or unconscious, so I say bravo for me. Giles finds the demon, named Toth, in his research, unusual because he uses tools to fight, and he smells weird. Kind of like garbage. That night, they head to the dump to look for Toth, and in the fight, Toth shoots Xander with his demon blaster, knocking him back into a pile of garbage. The demon floats away, and the gang pulls Xander out of the pile of garbage, without noticing that they're leaving behind another Xander, still knocked out in the garbage, who wakes up the next morning. Anya, you trying to use the hot plate again? Xander goes home to discover that some guy who looks exactly like him is in his basement apartment. What? No way. Who is me? What am I doing in there? He rushes to call Buffy from a payphone, but shiny new Xander walks by and Xander follows him, watching as he gets a promotion, signs for the new apartment, and gets hit on by the apartment manager, all while playing with a shiny coin. When shiny Xander comes out of the apartment, Xander jumps him, but shiny Xander knocks him out and runs off, leaving our Xander on the floor. Xander follows Shiny Xander to Giles and watches through the window as Shiny Xander tells Buffy, Giles, and Riley that they have to find and kill the demon that stole his face. Don't worry, Xander. Whatever stole your face, it has to deal with the Slayer now. Xander goes to Willow and tells her things only the two of them know to prove that he's the real Xander. She hasn't seen Shiny Xander and has no idea what he's talking about. They run through some theories on what the face-stealing demon could be. It's a robot! It's an evil robot constructed from evil parts that look like me designed to do evil. Mm-hmm. Or it's Toth. Or it's Toth. Buffy, Giles, Riley, and Shiny Xander come to the same conclusion 
and Buffy tells Shiny Xander to hide out with Anya while she kills the other Xander. At Willow's, she goes into magic mode to help, but Xander has doubts. Shiny Xander is shiny and is living Xander's life better than he is. He's about to let Shiny Xander have his life when he realizes that also means Shiny Xander gets Anya and he can't allow that to happen. He needs Anya. Really? Xander rushes to Anya's place to find her and listens to the message left by Shiny Xander telling Anya to meet him at the new apartment. He goes through Anya's things looking for something, then busts into the new apartment and confronts Shiny Xander. Meanwhile, Willow rushes to Giles' to tell them about real Xander, and they compare notes, with Buffy and Riley realizing that their Xander was a little different. Our Xander, did he seem a little... He seemed kind of forceful, confident. That's not Xander. Giles goes to the books and discovers that both Xanders are Xander. Toth's blaster stick was intended to split Buffy into a strong Buffy and a weak one. He could kill the weak one easily, also killing the strong one. So the same goes for the Xanders. We lose one, we lose them both. At the new apartment, Xander pulls a gun on Shiny Xander and they wrestle for the gun. Just as Shiny Xander gets it and pulls it on Xander, Buffy and Riley rush in and Buffy convinces Shiny Xander to give her the gun and explains the situation. Turns out the shiny hypnotizing coin is just a flattened nickel. Just then Toth busts through the door, blows a hole in the carpet with his demon blaster and gets stabbed through the heart by Buffy's sword. Oh yeah, that clean deposit's gone. I was thinking the same thing. Hey, do you suppose we're both Xander? At the magic shop, as they set up for the reintegration spell, Xander asks Shiny Xander how he managed to get the promotion and the attention of the apartment manager, and it turns out it was just because he's good at his job and cute. Huh. Willow ends the spell, and Xander is one again. The next day, Riley and Buffy are helping Xander pack up his stuff in the basement, and Riley talks about how Buffy makes him feel like he's split in two on fire and peaceful at the same time. He goes on about how amazing she is and then casually drops this little bomb. But she doesn't love me. All right, no well, I know, right? So the replacement, first of all, can we just have a moment of appreciation for Jane Espenson, who is so funny and so adorable and I love her work. And is doing, doing God's work really of making me like, love Xander so and much. making me love Riley. I like Riley in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. Is this like also a behind the scenes personality swap? <laughs> Did you and I, I switch? Did something happen? Okay. I, who are who you, Noelle? <laughs> who even knows? Who even knows? It could be anything. Yeah. So what did but you think? How do you like it? I, I like a lot of it. Mm -hmm. I also... And sort of not confused by a lot of it, but it, but interested. It, it it raises many questions for me. Yes. And I'm, okay. I'm uh -huh. I mean, and partly I'm with Riley at the end mm -hmm. when he says, "Does anyone else just want to lock him in separate rooms and do experiments on him?" Oh like, I'm like, I'm like, yeah, actually, a little bit. Like, I really want to know. Like, I have so many questions about the whole being split in two thing. Um, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> But also there's some, I mean, obviously this is like a light, charming episode in a lot of ways with mm -hmm. some really big, twisty, crunchy, difficult things right. sprinkled in, which, or maybe not even sprinkled, maybe just like folded in to the batter of the story. And I just lost my metaphor. Um <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, that's okay, baby. But I, I mean, do that I mean, all the time. I mean, that's what we do here at Chipperish. We like have the metaphor and then we lose the metaphor. Uh, absolutely. Mix it with another metaphor. There yeah. you go. Yeah. Yes. But opening with the the two couples mm-hmm. on the cat, like that whole scene feels yeah. uncharacteristically Buffy to me. Like, mm-hmm. there's something about it that feels a little bit off, but in a way that I kind of enjoy. Yeah. And maybe that's maybe maybe that's my sense of the entire episode. Like, there's something really off here, but I also really like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're in Xander's POV. And whenever we're in Xander's POV, it almost plays like a bizarro world. You know, everything always feels a little bit off when we're so deep in Xander's POV. But the thing I liked about having the couples in the beginning is that basically we have this whole episode that's kind of about duality after an entire season of, you know, talking about identity stories. And here we've got this duality of identity. And then we've got these two, um, two, you know, uh, couples kind of reflecting like there's one couple that's clearly, you know, supposed to be like the best couple, you know, Mm -hmm. and then there's one that's, Anya and Xander. It's you know? <laughs> <laughs> kind of it's kind of limping along a little bit, right? But then yes, but Riley's you know, so sweet. But then, of course, we find out. You know, it's mm-hmm. this nice bookend yeah. situation, right? Mm-hmm. Because it just there's this this awkwardness as we mm-hmm. open, right? You know, with Riley and Buffy and Xander and Anya kind of doing the double date night thing in Xander's mm-hmm. basement. I mean, and. Of course, Willow and Tara are notably absent. Yes. Presumably they're babysitting Dawn, working on their chess moves. Who knows? I guess, um, yeah. But it, it... I don't know. There's something... Something about this scene, this opening scene, feels really long mm-hmm. to me. Yeah. And I don't know if it's it's that way on purpose to kind of build up the general awkwardness of this four-person dynamic where like riley is trying so hard everyone riley's like really riley's really trying i know anya clearly has something on her mind in addition to the hot plate which she brings up several (laughs) times throughout the episode and is like this little symbol of her it is representative yes. of dissatisfaction, yes. <laughs> like her material dissatisfaction, but also like her existential crisis about right. like things dying. Yes. And I'm just, I love it. I love yes. it. I love the hot plate as metaphor. And of mm-hmm. course, Buffy is enjoying the studying since when? And it's a history. What? It's a history textbook. Like, she has never enjoyed history. Like, that is one of the things she's always struggled with. Although I like it. I'm, I'm excited. I also am very excited that she is managing to take a class in college that's just history. Like, yeah. I don't think there's a generic just history class in college. You're taking, you know, American history from 1754 through Reconstruction (laughs) or something like that, right? Like, you know, you take very specific history classes, you know, in college, and the book is clearly a high school textbook. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, what what could possibly be interesting? Because those, like, generic 
it's history. You know, like high school textbooks that just cover everything are the worst. They're terribly written. There's no, <laughs> nothing compelling about them. They're not, you know, like telling interesting stories. It's just a recitation of facts and dates and whatever. Um, whereas in college, you get to read like, you know, I took British history and we read the, the you know, biography of Eleanor of Aquitaine. And like, that was a whole thing. And I was like, oh, my God, that's interesting, you know. Um, so I just I find it all of that in that one. I'm, I'm going way too long for this one shot of Buffy but it's so it's so funny and then they're watching this show and Buffy's you know critiquing like that expertise when you get somebody with expertise watching a movie that involves that area of expertise I love it because they just can't you know it's the most fun I actually really love it raw enthusiasm I I love it yeah I love well and it's interesting because Buffy is Attending to everything except Riley. Like, mm-hmm. presumably she's here with Riley. Yeah. And Xander and Anya. But she's mm-hmm. here, like, she's here as part of a couple. And, of course, what she's doing is studying. And then she's yeah. critiquing the movie. And she's not really... hmm She's not really tuned in to Riley. No. Meanwhile, Riley's tuned into everything poor Riley. Right. Riley is Riley is Mr. Empath in this episode. Like he's, you know, he's rubbing Buffy's shoulders and doing a good job of it because when he takes his hands away because he he realizes he's, you know, making Xander feel bad. Um, she says, no, no, no. Where's the rubbing? Right. You know, um, so Riley is actually like one of my favorite things in this episode which is so bizarre for me (laughs) that's how we know it's a bizarro episode (laughs) i think i think because we're so deep in xander's pov and xander's kind of a little in love with riley i think like a little yeah yeah well he's definitely got this idea that the Mm -hmm. buffy riley dynamic is the dynamic yeah um and of course it's not because we get this sad the the bookend of the yeah. opening scene with the final scene where you know mm-hmm. Riley has that moment with Xander about relationships and I'm just like in pain like why oh yeah uh, it's it's interesting for Riley to confide in Xander in that mm-hmm. way mm-hmm. um but it also I mean maybe because it's Jane Espenson it works for me it doesn't. It doesn't feel like Riley, but I'm totally okay with that because I love the the pain of that. I know. She does love me. Oh my God. What? It's so like, and he's going on about how wonderful she is and all of this stuff. And he has that nice moment too earlier with Buffy, right? Where Buffy, in also a bizarre world move, initiates an actual conversation about oh did you wish that we that I was split and you could have just Uh Buffy Buffy because I know you don't like the Slayer gig and all that kind of stuff and he's like no I want all of you you know and he says the absolute right thing and I do believe that it's it's genuine Um, although I think he does want all of her he just wants all of her to be just a little bit weaker than he is you know Um, which we'll see we'll deal with that later because in this episode in this episode Riley is really fantastic and then he's you know tells Xander all of this stuff um, and says, you know, but she doesn't love me. But he doesn't, you know, tell Buffy that. And I guess like, 
out out of all of these times where they should have had a conversation and i'm always like idiots just talk you know and buffy <laughs> doesn't ever want to talk and then we've got bizarro buffy who actually initiates a conversation and then riley doesn't riley won't and i kind of understand why he won't because if yeah. he tells her that he knows she doesn't love him she's just going to say well yes of course i love you and you know, and he's still not going to believe it. He's still not going to feel it. He knows. Yeah. He yeah. knows that he's, you know, that he's the normal guy, you know, that he's not the vampire, that he's, you know, he's the anti-angel, that he basically is there to not be angel, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a tough place to be in, to know, you know, that he's he's sort of like normal guy. I mean, angel rebound. I think that Riley exists in this space because of angel and i think that he knows that yeah yeah and it sucks and i hate it i know and it's really (laughs) sad and it really makes me have so much empathy for riley and i love how empathetic he is he is feeling everything from everybody he's on to like you can see him like having empathy for Anya, who's hurt, and having empathy for Xander, who's humiliated, right? You know, in this in this terrible basement, right? Um, all of it is, it's just, it's it's a really, you're right, it's long and it's awkward. And the ending scene is also a little bit long and a little bit weird. We could have just had Riley and Xander packing up, but instead we have this, we've got Buffy and Anya and Anya not wanting to do anything. And can't we just pack up Buffy like a mule? She's got Slayer strength, you know, like all this stuff. I enjoy that. That's very Anya and very, yeah. It's very very on brand. It's very Mm -hmm. on brand for Anya. So we've got that whole thing that we don't really need. And then we come into this, this really nice moment of, you know, masculine community. Where yeah. you have two men who are having a conversation. Like the way we have the Bechdel test, right? That women are having a conversation that is not about a man. Like yeah. men having a conversation that is actually about feelings and about them. Like, you know, that's also How something they feel. that's nice. Yeah. yeah. It's really nice to see that, you know. And I like that Xander is our, you know, our male heart, you know, in the five man yeah. band kind of thing that he is the emotional connection. And it's taken him a couple of seasons to like fully, you know, come to this. But I think that this, the replacement is a huge turning point for Xander as a character. Oh, because for sure. it's, you know, there's pre replacement Xander that didn't know what his strengths were. You know, and then there's post replacement Xander who actually starts like that's my Xander who I love, like from here on out that he 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 seems to know that he has strengths. We give him competency. He becomes the guy who fixes all of the broken things, which I really love. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's it's really nice. Well, and the final shot Mm -hmm. is Xander's reaction to Buffy and Riley being all coupley after Riley has you know, not only yeah. talked about his feelings, but also has revealed what he knows about yeah. his relationship with Buffy and presumably like where it's going. Like yeah. if he has these feelings and he knows that she doesn't, mm-hmm. he knows that this is not right. sustainable. So we we have this shot. We hold on Xander mm-hmm. watching them be a couple like everything is normal, yeah. but he knows the truth about Mm -hmm. the emotional landscape you know Mm -hmm. below all of that Mm -hmm. and it's just it's a great 
it's a great visual cue that we yeah. are introducing or reintroducing Xander as the heart of mm-hmm. the group, as Xander as the one who sees and knows things mm-hmm. um, that other folks in the narrative don't. Like, it's a really, like I said at the at the opening of the show, like, it's this really, like, deep, meaningful stuff, but yeah. layered in here with this, like, light and totally <laughs> hilarious like like the yeah. just the bizarro world antics of there are two xanders and one yeah. of them is like bumbling struggling xander and one of them is what is it that he says he's so smooth he's so smooth you have to know he's not me but the thing that's so funny is that you know we follow through i mean they are both xander as we discover at the end right but we follow through with the Xander that's messy and screwed up and covered in garbage. I call him lesser Xander in my yeah. notes, which garbage feels Xander. judgy, but that's, yeah. I don't but mean it, it is. It's like, it's, it's lesser, it's garbage Xander, right? You know, it's like, yeah. these are all the things, but these, but this is how he views himself. Like he identifies more completely. How you have to know he's not me. He's all smooth. He's all right? smooth. Yeah. But it is Sander. And so I, I love that, that they give him that competence, that they give him, they he's, this is an episode that reflects Xander back at himself in a way that is actually really positive, you know, that he can see his own strengths, you know? And it's funny because there's that moment too, where Buffy and Riley are like, well, our Xander was kind of forceful and confident. It was a little weird. Yeah. <laughs> and so, Willow immediately says, that's not Xander. That's <laughs> not Xander. Exactly. <laughs> because, you know, Willow, who's known Xander the longest, has seen him at his worst. Yeah. And um, mm-hmm. if for no other reason than she's had the most opportunity. But I just love, I love the certainty with which Willow says, that's not Xander. <laughs> it's not Xander. <laughs> yep. Yep. But the only, but that that point of view that like super deep in mm-hmm. lesser xander yeah garbage xander garbage it's, so, it's so mean i don't I... mean like because he's so sweet he but is. that that point of view mm-hmm. is really the only reason that the the fake out works that mm-hmm. we think that this couldn't possibly like yeah. There's no reason there's no reason for us to believe that this is also Xander. Well, especially because they really do. Like they, you know, they uh, it's almost lying to your audience because but except that we're so deep in Xander's POV that anything's suspicious. So I think it's it's not lying to but like things like when when, you know, shiny Xander is all, yes, it must be Toth. You know, <laughs> and like, you know, when we see him with the with the nickel, you know, and he's mm-hmm. shine and he's shining it in people's faces. And then all of a sudden he's got a new job and all of a sudden this woman is hitting on him and like all of this stuff. It's the kind of thing that like Xander is looking like garbage Xander, <laughs> as awful as that is, garbage Xander is looking for any reason to believe that this this version of himself is evil. So he's attaching to all of these things. Now, granted, some of these things that are happening are not happening while Xander garbage Xander is watching. So we can't really blame it. Like it is a little bit of cheating. It is a little bit of lying to the audience the way that we have smooth Xander, you know, or, or 
shiny Xander, um, you know, saying certain lines, sounding evil, you know, all of this kind of stuff. Um, but you know, overall, like it's it's not it's not a terrible egregious violation of don't lie to your audience. You know, it's it they skate by on this one. You yeah, know, just they barely. really they really do just kind of like get by with a technicality. Like when when yeah. you know more so Xander, shiny Xander, shiny says, Xander says Harris. And, you know, he's uh-huh. on the construction site. He's clearly do, right. like he clearly knows he clearly knows his name and like where to go and stuff. But then his boss calls him yeah. and he says Harris in recognition mm-hmm. in this way where it kind of sounds it like, looks he's, like he doesn't know he's like, his name. Oh, yes. Like he's pretending. Right. Um, exactly. So so they really did put that stuff in there to it is lying to your audience. Except I think I think when you're in in Garbage Xander's POV, it's not because he's going to be clearly assigning, you know, importance to things that may just be random, you know, like the the nickel, you know. Um, But but at the same time, like we really are setting up the audience to believe with textual evidence that shiny Xander is not actual xander you know yeah that we've got um, one yeah. we've got one real xander and one exactly. imposter xander exactly um particularly when he's talking to anya about mm-hmm. you know being human and yeah he says like she says something like you have no idea what that's like and he says mm-hmm. being suddenly human i could imagine what that would be like and you're exactly. all like exactly you know the audience is going no whatever you know whatever we think he is at that point um but i like what i like about that particular fake out is no he's just like he just has empathy like he's just trying to imagine what that would be like and that's kind of great because that's good xander at his best that's what he does what he does best is fix shit and feel other people's pain and like understand other people, um, you know, from this emotional space. And um, and I, I love it. I love this transitional episode for Xander because I think it gives us like a new level of Xander. Unfortunately, Xander is still going to suck in the way that he treats Anya. But we'll deal with that as we move forward. That is like the only thing I so hate the way that he talks to Anya um, in general, well, and, not necessarily in this episode. But yeah, in general, well, and yeah. Willow, Willow kind of gives us that little beginning mm-hmm. of like, hey, you just now thought of Anya? Like there's yeah. somebody walking around who looks just like you and yeah Matt like this is this is the last thing that you come up with right and who did he go to he didn't go to Anya and explain who he is right he went to Willow yeah he's I mean his first thought is I need Buffy Mm -hmm. and then his second thought is I need Willow he goes to Willow yeah yeah and then when he says I need Anya and Willow goes really oh my god (laughs) oh my god (laughs) Okay, Willow doesn't do much in this episode, but Willow is goddamn fantastic in this episode. She really, really is. I Mm -hmm. mean, the Willow, the Willow that we're starting to see. Mm -hmm. Oh, God, I don't know. I don't know if this is new in season five. It Mm -hmm. feels new in season five. The Willow who is both her kind of childish self you know the willow mm-hmm. who says really <laughs> when yeah. sander says he needs anya but also 
this adult competent witch who says well it's really just toss spell that's keeping you apart so here we go we're gonna do this thing let the spell be ended and then boom yeah and i mean just the 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 competence and confidence with which she just throws out things like goddess of childbirth she's got some heft to her in this like really appreciative way there's like this i know there's like this deeper knowledge of something i don't know i don't know Mm -hmm. if it's the new i don't know if it's the new relationship if it's the new deeper appreciation and understanding of magic if it's we've you know we made it through the first year of college and now we're you know a little Mm -hmm. bit you know, feeling like like more on stable ground, but this willow, yeah, feels like my willow a little yeah. bit. I'm like, yeah, that's right. But she's, yeah, she's both like she's she's ma- she manages to be both upset mm-hmm. because Xander is upset, and also there's a foe Xander running around apparently, right. but also super confident and mm-hmm. competent and yeah you know that's not xander but <laughs> she does give us that little bit of like hey yeah the xander on your relationship is not mm, mm-hmm. maybe not great because yeah you didn't you didn't think of anya until just now yeah dude <laughs> yes yeah. i mean it wasn't it wasn't his first or second thought you know yeah. um So, yeah, it was it's it's tough because I love Anya. Like, I love Anya so much, but I hate her relationship with Xander. I hate the way she's not appreciated. You know, I love Willow's delivery. Really? But I hate that that's the attitude that we all like kind of that textually is supported for Anya. That Anya's like, "Eh," you know, that kind of thing. Um, But I really, really like her. And I like her. I, you know, I, I, I'm i going to love her in season seven. That's when we get her back or like right. after after Hell's Bells in season six, after she breaks up with Xander, we get some fantastic Anya from that point forward, you know. But while she's with Xander, it's really God, he dims her light, man. And he just the way that he talks to her and the way that he dismisses her and fails to appreciate her. Um, yeah, there's and there's a lot a- of stuff wrong with that. And it's such a bummer in part because everyone else goes along with it to mm-hmm. one degree or another. Like she is this kind of unfortunate add on to the group. Right. Like everyone, everyone else responds to her like, oh, really? Like Anya's here yeah. or like Anya's too. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not good. It's yeah, like nobody likes her. Nobody respects her. She has a thousand years of demon knowledge in that little noggin there. Uh, let's <laughs> use it, you know. Um, and she does often have information. You know, she had information about Dracula. She had known him. She had met him, you know. Um, so her experience, she actually brings quite a lot to the Scooby table and yet is constantly dismissed and um yeah and i just it's always a disappointment to me i i always find it really disappointing the way that she is so easily dismissed by everybody i mean you know but mostly because xander is you know her primary relationship that he's supposed to be in her corner he's supposed to be defending her he is instead like for a big chunk of what's to come taking the 
the shots at her, you know, at her yeah. expense. So I find that disappointing. But in this episode, it's very, very sweet. This, <laughs> in this episode, it's all very, very sweet, aside from the, you know, very telling thing that he didn't even think about her. Um, can we talk about the magic shop for a little bit? Because yes. I am, I am so happy. Like, <laughs> the new sets, we've got Xander's apartment, which is going to play into, you know, that's where we're going to be uh, be setting a lot of things. We've got the magic shop. We've got Giles in the magic shop. Giles as a business owner. Giles is no longer wearing sweaters, baby. He's buttoned down Giles. Like, you know, we had Tweed Giles up until, you know, he got fired by the watchers. Then it's sweater Giles. And now we got buttoned down Giles. And I got to say, magic shop owning buttoned down Giles is like, I think my favorite. Giles. <laughs> I think every Giles is your favorite Giles. Like, oh, I, they're all good. I mean, I do love Giles, even yeah. when Giles is uh, not good. Interesting still... and problematic. But... You know, yeah, and I still love him, and I'm not proud of it. Okay, I'm not proud. I'm just being honest. <laughs> but we get, I mean, but this Giles, the Giles we get this in this Giles. episode, is some yeah. peak Giles. Oh. God, I mean, I his him. whole like, oh God, his whole bit with the box, yes. with miscellaneous curses. Be lucky if I don't. What is it like? Hex my hand off at the wrist hex or whatever it is he said. It's wrist. so right. funny. I know, and it's so for adorable. his own benefit. Yeah, he's cracking a joke there for his own benefit. Just no one to else is there. Himself, I know, and he I he is love making it. his own fun because he is a business owner and he is. Like I doing his thing. And then, of course, you know, he spins around and Toth is there and he pulls out the rabbit's foot and we get right. some fantastic, like, <laughs> physical comedy from Giles, which I always enjoy. And then when he's trying to hit him with the goddess statue and then we see him later, you know, swiping the goddess statue. And of course, you know, Willow has her. It has some heft line, yeah. you know. Um, and oh then God. Riley takes some swings yes! with the statue. It's so good. There's some really good... But he's. But then he says he's like, "I'm not dead or unconscious." So it's a problem for me. me. Like, <laughs> he's so pleased with himself. Yes. And then my one of my absolute favorite bits in the mm-hmm. entire episode is when Willow comes bursting into his house and he says, "Wait, wait, where is it? Oh God, damn it! I know, I I know, I have it written down because it's so great." He, she just comes busting in and he says. I swear this time I know I had that locked. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Which is just, you know, because everybody always just comes walking through the front door. Like, nobody knocks at Giles's. No. Nobody knocks. It's a great, I mean, but it's also, that's a great conceit of fiction, right? Mm -hmm, And I love it when we pull those things out. We're like, hey, wait a second. We reference those things. Yeah, we reference, you know, like Giles. Giles has referenced his own, you know, not getting knocked out when right, he falls right, right. in a Buffy versus Dracula when he falls in the chick pit. Yes. He's like, well, at least you didn't get knocked out this time. Good exactly. to show Giles. Like he's, yeah. we've got, I think post unemployment Giles is now like self-aware Giles. He and is he knows, very self-aware. He knows yeah. his role on he's the very show. genre savvy too. Yes, yes. <laughs> like yes. He, I think I think this is when Giles realizes that he is a character on a TV show. Like he, he seems to have well, this metatextual knowledge. Oh, one hundred percent. I mean, mm-hmm. when they're talking about what's going on with with the Xanders, and he says, he says, "Oh dear Lord," and then 
Buffy and Willow keep talking and he says, I said, oh, oh dear, dear Lord. Lord. And Buffy says, you always say that. <laughs> because, and he's like, because I always have something relevant. You know, yeah, it's, it's really, it's really, really cute. And it is very, very self-aware, which I, which I love. And, um, and I just, I'm so happy to have the magic shop. I love that set. Um, I love the back room, you know, where he and Buffy train. I love mm. the, the whole, sp- I love the stairway that goes up to the bookshelves where he keeps the dangerous books and um, it's just it's so great and the little you know and putting the pentagram on the floor and making the space to do the spell and of course candles and pretense from candles and pretense <laughs> I well and I love I mean I I got us way off track with the the magic shop set but I absolutely love that it gets bigger inside yes. every time we go it's in like there it's like a TARDIS it's like a TARDIS. It's like bigger how, on the inside. Yeah. How is there so much square footage? Like when I we first, when we Impressive first went into footage. the shop, yeah. it was this like tiny little right. hole in the wall magic shop, and now it's I like know. this vast performance and it's been, space. It's been and slowly. I'm, it's got magic shop creep. You know. There I you mean, go. if ever yeah. there was a shop that was going to have magical square footage, it would be a magic shop. I mean, especially I mean, on a Hellmouth. I mean, come on. Really? Right? Absolutely. Yeah. So I, Absolutely. I love the magic shop and I'm so, so pleased that we're there. Um, we get a little bit of spike in this episode, right? Just a little bit, and we're seeding his obsession with Buffy. Like he's at the dump, he's on Toth's side. Um, and he's he's <laughs> oh stealing Lord. a yeah. mannequin that he then goes and dresses like the Slayer. And we are about to find out, like we are very close to to him waking up from a dream and realizing consciously that he is in love with Buffy. Um, but, you know, last week with uh, with Harmony, you know, you're singing my song, you know, um, I'm going to kill the Slayer. Then he's got this, this uh, mannequin that he's dressing up as Buffy. Oh, and, boy. you know, kicks that's... her head off and then picks yeah. it up and runs his fingers gently over her face and god i love it and it's so funny because i i don't remember all the seating that they do so early in season five but we are getting off to a rockin star i mean and we also have oh god joyce's this must be my two teenage girls in the house headache right oh i oh god. my stomach just dropped i Where know she's, i was like we oh know what's shit. coming well and we're starting that already like so soon oh my and it's also god the thing okay there's so much going on here but mm-hmm. the thing that's such a bummer about that is that she's right mm-hmm. like she's making a joke in that moment but it's right. like yeah like this mm-hmm. is literally the creation of Dawn is literally what kills Joyce. And is do we have that textually? Well that, that it's what causes her her brain her brain tumor, cancer? aneurysm, yeah. whatever it is. Like I I mean, do we have it textually? I'm not sure we do. But it's pretty But it does feel like it feels a butterfly so effect, direct right? because mm-hmm. it does because that oh that you know, whole Correlation thing. is not causation. Just because they happen at the same time doesn't mean that they're necessarily That's related. True, but doesn't but, mean that they're not. But it fucks with her memory, and yeah. it ha- like there's something I don't know. It feels like it. it I feels don't know. It like feels very direct. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, 
I don't, oh god uh, it's so it's, it's so, so hard bad. this episode for such a fun like whenever I think about the replacement you know I always think of how fun and funny and light it is Two but we, is no waiting. you know right <laughs> exactly we get the um you know we get Joyce's uh headache you know um Joyce's brain tumor being seated here we get uh all the as much as I like Riley in this episode the downfall of Riley is starting now you know, yes. with his yeah. um, with his, you know, understanding that, that Buffy does not love him um, and Spike's obsession with Buffy, you know, which which goes to, I mean, some very, very interesting places as we move forward. Um, that itself is seeded here. Like all of these things are starting to happen. And this is, I think, part of the reason why I love season five so much, because in season five, we come in and we are not fucking around. Like there is a plan. We know what we're doing. We're working very deliberately towards something. Um, And I love, I mean, I love season five. I know that there are, you know, some issues. We'll talk about it as we go. But overall, I think, especially just because for me, my primary value is the narrative, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. And, and they know what um, they're doing at this point. Yeah, they they are confidently moving forward in a structured, you know, choreographed march. Like yeah. these people are doing what they're doing and they know what they're doing. And it is so delightful for me just from a narrative perspective. Um, and, and I love it. Yeah. And everything supports that narrative. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're, mm-hmm. we're talking about, you know, you're talking about the writers and mm-hmm. the directors and folks behind the camera, you know, behind the camera mm-hmm. know what yeah. they're doing and they know where the story is going. But these actors have also spent Mm-hmm. a significant amount of time with these characters as well yeah. so you know as we're seeing as we're watching characters that we love become more themselves and grow up and mature into their roles within the group we're also mm-hmm. watching actors mature as yeah. performers like they yeah. you know as everyone as everyone grows up they get better yeah. Like the actors get better at acting. And in fact, it's not in my notes, but I do want to just shout out Nick Brendan playing both Xanders is oh, fantastic. He didn't. Well, he did play both Xanders, but the he has a twin brother. So I think no whenever whenever shit. Yeah, whenever any Xander Yeah, whenever any Xander had a line, I think he delivered the lines. Like if it was just um if it was a shot of just you know, one Xander than that was Nick Brendan, you know? So, I mean, he swapped out and played both roles, I believe. But, like, his his twin brother was there for all the double shots and, like, the two of them laughing together. And when they, you know, like, so so some of it was done by his brother. I think that, because I was watching it and I was like, I've seen this enough. You know when you, you meet identical twins and you're like, I, I literally can't tell you apart, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's some white guy. All white men look the same to me. I'm sorry. Um yeah. But I just let like, I don't know. I just love his his performance is fantastic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, it is. And it's he, really, really good. And his reaction. I love Xander reacting to Xander. Yes. He's it's really, so really good. Yeah. So Nick Brendan is really, really good. And as we move through, you know, as we move through the seasons uh-huh. with these actors and these characters, everybody just gets better. I mean, mm-hmm. nobody was a slouch in the acting department to start. Yeah. But 
Dang. Yeah. Dang. We're seeing a lot of, it's a lot of leveling up, I -hmm. think. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of leveling up. Um, But one of the things I find really interesting and, and, you know, possibly, I mean, this is one of the things like I love, I love an identity story in narrative. There's two kinds. Like I love an identity story and I love a a love story, be it a romantic sexual love story or just a best friend's love story or whatever. Just any two people who love each other story. Right. You know, Um, those are always, I know, those (laughs) are always like they speak to me like so deeply. And I think that's part of the reason why Buffy has always appealed to me so deeply is that we do spend so much time playing an identity. Like season four was all about every everybody kind of figuring out their individual identity. But throughout, we have a lot of these episodes, right, where we have identity swaps, you know, um, Giles and a new man, we had Buffy and Faith and who are you? Uh, we had the the doppelganger, Willow and doppelgangland. And now yeah. we have, a, you know, dual Xander and the replacement. Um, we spent a lot of time splitting people's identities apart, doing bizarro world episodes where everybody's suddenly different, something blue. Um, you know, where where we we are able to explore who somebody is through exploring who they're not, you know, in a lot of these different yeah. episodes, you know. Um, and I find that so funny and interesting and crunchy the way that they keep going back to this. I mean, you know, like the episode that swapped Buffy and Faith, of course, was called Who Are You? And I think the Who Are You is a central question throughout the run of Buffy because who any particular character is at the beginning is completely different from who they are at the end. Like everybody has an arc. I don't think there's anybody who remains a static character um, through the run, you know, any yeah. significant character. I don't think there's anybody who remains static. Everybody arcs, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we'll even see, I think, sometimes our villains arc. You know, we saw the mayor arking into that love story with arc. Faith. Right, you know. Oh, I love a villain I know, arc. it's so yeah. good. It's so good. Um, so I, I love the way that Buffy plays with this identity and, and the replacement. I, what's so fun about the replacement is that, you know, we see who people are by who they aren't. We see Giles in the context of being a demon and how that changes who he is for a little while inside, right? And he feels that rage and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, we see a Buffy, you know, and f- being Faith, right? In the in mm-hmm. the body and experience of Faith um, and all of this. So we have all of this identity showing who people are by showing who they aren't. And here we have Xander showing us who Xander is by showing us who Xander is. And I think yeah. that that is such a wonderful twist on that play space. And showing Xander who Xander is, yeah. which brings me to, you know, brings me back to we do our point of view, our Xander mm-hmm. point of view for this episode is yeah. all in this like lesser Xander, basement yeah. Xander headspace because he's gotten very yeah. bogged down in that space yeah. and he's lost touch with the part of him that mm-hmm. is super competent at his construction job despite yep. not having construction experience and yep. who is adorable and gets flirted with and mm-hmm. who is able to you know literally build things and make things for himself and you know have that even have that emotional connection with mm-hmm. Anya yeah 
about her her existential crisis like he has this opportunity to see the good things about himself that he's Mm -hmm. lost touch with in his you know basement depression and really I don't blame him. I mean, he's, yeah. you know, he's joking about it, but his, you know, his parents come home uh-huh. and he says something about his parents being home. And then he says, oh, no, I was wrong. Just some incompetent burglars. Right. Which it, there's so much pain behind that. I know. Um, it's so sad. And here we are getting so much like the first time I think we textually really acknowledged how bad his home situation was, was in Restless. Right. Mm-hmm. We kind of hinted at it. But here we have a, like an even stronger textual acknowledgement of how damaging that childhood has been, mm-hmm. you know, for Xander. Um, and it's yeah. it's really I mean, it's played off in this, you know, funny joke. But we are like Riley is our POV character in that scene. And we are feeling that discomfort. Yeah. Yeah. So to show who Xander is mm-hmm. by showing who Xander is and mm-hmm. making that a a visual and textual mm-hmm. um, distinction, like pulling basically like pulling out all of the Xander strengths and mm-hmm. putting them in the show yeah. in their own space. It's like just it's really, really good. I really you like know, it. This show, I think for anybody out there who is a writer. Um, watching Buffy and and keeping a careful eye on what they do, like the ways in which there there is something about like whatever the faults of Buffy might be, and I understand complaints about the show and about some of the things that the show does. Like I get it, um, but there is a a really brilliant way that this group of writers will play with and subvert you know, the the standard way that things are done in order to like, not just to subvert it, you know, which I think the whole concept of Buffy, I think was just just to subvert something to subvert it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but what they're doing with it, what they've been doing with it, and subverting these things, not just to say, oh, I did it different. But using that subversion to dig deeper into like who these characters are and what they're doing. I think that honestly, like a a lot, I started studying story with Buffy, you know, and learned so much of what I've learned. I've learned from Buffy. And that's why I keep coming back to this text to talk about it, because I think that it is incredibly rich, you know, um, Mm -hmm. as far as like a lot of these discussions. go. I mean, here we are. We've got this silly dual identity thing and we're talking about you know Anya's existential crisis and the duality of identity and what does this mean and all this kind of stuff I mean there's so much to talk about even in something that appears to be just a silly episode but there are so many really wonderful things going on and as a writer when you're not sure what to do or where to go with something um trying to think the way that a Buffy writer would think. What would a Buffy writer do? You know, here I have something I want to talk about identity. How do I do that? You know, and by digging into these episodes like this, like I've learned so much about about writing and storytelling from these these writers because of the way that they subvert these expectations. And then Jane Espenson does it. You know, like, I mean, you know, like a figure skater, right? You watch a figure skater and it's so beautiful and smooth and they make it look so easy. You know, every time I watch a figure skater and I know, I know 
I can't. I can't get on the ice without falling down. Like, I know what kind of skill I have. But when I watch a figure skater, I think, imagine being able to, like, I can imagine myself being able to do that, right? Because they, mm-hmm. they're so beautiful and they make it look easy. Like, they're just un- the hardest thing in the world. They make it look easy. And I think that's what Espenson does. She does these things that are so much more complex than they appear. And when she does them, she just makes it look like it's just a simple, she's just joking around. She's just writing the funny jokes. But what she's Mm -hmm. actually doing with the narrative underneath that, really, really impressive. She's always impressed the hell out of me. Yeah. Yeah. Jane Espenson is a master of... Mm -hmm we're taking this funny little story or we're taking this funny little scenario and building all of this complexity into it. Mm -hmm. Um, And specifically with point of view, that's something that I love about the Buffy episodes that Jane Espenson writes is so Mm -hmm. many of them are a shift in point of view Mm -hmm. somehow. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I just can't wait to get to Storyteller. Like, I know. Oh, my like, God, I like, know. So, like, I'm just like, okay, all right. Just like, you know, there's like an episode countdown in my head. I'm like, oh, my God. To Storyteller, so I good. know. There's yeah. certain episodes that throughout the run, I'm always like, this is my next, like, episode that I cannot wait to talk about, you oh know. My God. And then there are episodes that I do not want to talk about. <laughs> You're like, do we have to? <laughs> no, I mean, like, good episodes, but like the body not looking forward to that. Although oh, there's so much I talk will, about. I've I'll... taught it in my class. It's beautiful. Like there's mm-hmm. so much, but dear God, like I just don't want to cry on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. It's not a shipperish podcast if you don't cry at some I point. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Noel, what are you wearing? Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, I do appreciate that Garbage Xander, Lesser Xander, whatever yes. we want to call him, is dressed kind of like a cartoon character. He really super is. It's so cute. He really, like, I mean, we we make the Scooby-Doo comparison a lot, but he really yes. does look like someone just plucked him out of oh, a Scooby-Doo Oh, yeah, he's shaggy. Scooby-Doo he's cartoon. 100% shaggy. He is. Yeah. He, he's adorable. Mm-hmm. Um, But the thing that, like just sparked so much joy for me is yeah. Anya's little nighty. I like know. she's so know she's band. got her little her little like head wrap hair yes. bow. Like she she's sitting there listening to uh-huh. Xander on the answering machine and she's clearly ready for bed. Yes. And I totally buy this almost old fashioned look for her. Yeah. Like, like you know how there's a certain period in your life that you just got like like when you go out into the world and you see women like my age wearing blue eyeshadow you know blue eyeliner <laughs> like you know that's because they hit a certain point and they're like this look good and they just stopped like they just didn't change anything from that point forward right I always wonder about that like yeah. is, is there I think a... there's a fashion freeze for some people I think that they huh. they have like a certain look that I think they like and they don't like change change is hard for a lot of people like a lot of people really struggle I personally really like it which is why my hair is always different you know weird shades it's of pink, different right? literally every time I see you and it's every delightful. time you see me it's different yeah uh, because I I'm a I'm a weirdo in that way but I think most people don't like it so I think that there's a certain point like you find something that works for you at a particular time and then like a lot of people just tend to stick with that thing you know, and I feel like I don't know what is this like maybe 1920s 
maybe well here's i mean kind of thing i'm not a i'm not a fashion expert i'm more of a visual studies person Mm -hmm. but the thing i mean the thing about any fashion item is it will loop back around oh it's like yes Mm -hmm. you know she looks like she looks a little bit old hollywood yes but Mm -hmm. also what i okay what i love so much about anya's appearance like Mm -hmm. full stop it is just a tremendous opportunity for wardrobe and hair and makeup to do their stuff. Oh, and to have so much fun with her. But, but it's funny because this is her nighttime look. Her nighttime yeah. look is all silk. And we see that again and once more with feeling during the number with her and Xander, right? Because she's yes. wearing, you know, her... 1940s her kind of... 1940s. She's got a very 1940s. But in the daytime, you know, she's fairly up to date. But what's so funny about her, like, her costuming is she's new to the whole, like, human thing. Right. Mm -hmm. But she clearly has some well-established ideas about how things are supposed to go. Right. Right. So that is just such a great challenge for visual storytelling. Anya loves beautiful things, but she also has this sense of wanting things to be correct. She well, has, she has this her idea. list, right? We get yeah. a puppy or a car yeah. or a boat, right? Yeah. Well, and she's had that from the beginning with Sander. Mm-hmm. She's like, okay, mm-hmm. we are in a relationship now. Right. You know, because we, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I am This human. is what we're doing. Please so, allow me to human it up, right? <laughs> yeah. It's mm-hmm. really interesting. And it she doesn't, she has this list of how things mm-hmm. are supposed to go, but she also doesn't really have a good sense of what is expected yeah. in the world, a.k.a. what is and is not, air quotes, appropriate right. for any given situation. And yes. to be able to do that with costuming or hair or makeup is so like that's just that just sounds like. I don't know. That sounds mm-hmm. like wardrobe catnip to me. Yeah. Like, How do we? Oh, yeah. How do we make her look cute and attractive? You know, and of course, mm-hmm. we have this adorable canvas to work with as well. Right. But how do we mm-hmm. make her look like someone who is attracted to beautiful things, but also make her look a little bit off? Like she doesn't right. quite fit. And I just love, I love the little nighty. I love it. And the yeah. the head wrap, bow, mm-hmm. whatever. She just... She's so cute, but she's also so out of sync with, like, where we are in contemporary life. she's not the girl who has yummy sushi pajamas, right? You know, like, she's, you know, she's lingerie. And, you know, like, there is a certain thing to her that is, and, you know, and extremely femme. Like, she is extremely feminine to the, yeah. Right. Yeah. And her whole her whole vengeance thing. And as we will discover later on, vengeance is not necessarily just about vengeance. You have to pick a particular, you know, major. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah, she majors in women's major. vengeance. Like <laughs> she is she is about like feminine rage. Rage. Basically. Yeah. And then she's she loses her rage and she doubles on the femme, you know? <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A little bit. I like it. I like it I like so it. much. And also, I mean, Spike with his mannequin is yeah. hella creepy for me. Yeah. I It's creepy. Um, but I like that he chose a light blue halter top 
for her. Because even in his, like, play acting scenario, he's still going to dress her as the heroine. Like, he uses the villain deliberately. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, of course, he's going to put her in something that Buffy would wear. You know, the halter top. Mm -hmm. I've patrolled in this halter many times. Exactly. Um, (laughs) But, you know. Light blue is our is our in in American yeah you know United States American romanticism. Mm-hmm. Uh, light blue is our heroine color. Uh, yeah. It's our hero and our heroine color, which mm-hmm. is another way that we know that clone Xander or double Xander is not bad guy Xander because right. mm-hmm. he wears this blue button front. And he's got his light there blue you going. Go. So. Oh, interesting. You know, yeah, I like it. I like it. I don't know it. where that started, by the way. That like yeah. light blue for heroes mm-hmm. and heroines. I'm gonna guess that it's probably tied to the Virgin Mary somehow. Um, Entirely possible. But it yeah. is one of those things in um, TV and movies that has been repeated so many times that so we all bad just guy doesn't wear light blue. Interesting. We just do it. We just we know. Like, yeah, in the same way, cues, right? Mm-hmm. In the same way that if you and I are talking to each other on camera and we cut from a shot of you to a shot of me, mm-hmm. we know that that means that you're looking at me or vice versa. Right. Mm-hmm. It's these like visual, these, yeah. these visual cues that we have that, you know, mm-hmm. were established at the beginning of. <laughs> cinema and we all just speak that language so we repeat that language Uh so you can also of course you can also mess with it if you Mm -hmm. want to for all of you subvert it creative yeah right subvert that shit you can mess with it but it's it's a great opportunity for um foreshadowing Mm -hmm. for giving us like a really great visual shorthand mm-hmm. for who's who in the cast is right. what colors, you know, associating certain colors with certain characters or certain mm-hmm. moods. Um, or in the case of Buffy's hair, <laughs> you yeah. know, we can just like judge based on mm-hmm. the curliness of Buffy's hair. Right, right, right. Whether we're in bizarro space or like, not. Like <laughs> just how bizarre is this world? How off is the world today? Exactly. Um, I also really love Toth. Like, I love yes. Toth's whole thing. I love his sweeping out majestically. I love that he's oh, got love- this drapey, cloaky thing. But also, like, they've got him all glowy in the face. And then during the fight scene in Xander's new apartment with Buffy, for the first time after seeing this episode like 8,000 times, right, I realized, oh, my God, they did it with a freaking black light. Because you can see on the back of her that the lighting, there is lighting from a black light on the back of her sweatshirt when she's fighting with him. And he doesn't glow unless he's like deep in the black light. I love it. It's so hilarious. And that's why his teeth glow the way they glow. Like I love the teeth. I, I love know. the team. I know. That's it. That's how they made him glow. And I was like, wow, the world before, you know, digital CG effects, you know, like this is what they had to do is put a freaking black light. I love in the a room. good physical effect. I love yeah. it so much. Yeah. I will never it's not really love a physical fun. effect. But I love his whole design. I love his whole face. I love the glowy thing. I love the blaster stick. I love the fact that he's like, he uses, he's a demon with tech, right? You know how I feel about tech. Yes. He's a demon with tech. He also knows his, he also knows his statuary. Oh, he does. Because when Giles comes at him, that's a fertility god. He's so (laughs) great. (laughs) 
<laughs> he knows the shit. I like Toth. Also, good plan, dude, for a villain plan to split Buffy up into a weak and strong Buffy and then take out the weak one. Yeah. I love that. I love it. Yeah. As as like monster of the week plans yeah. go, that's a really good one. It's it's very smart. I like it a lot. Um, all right. So do you have a girl power moment of the week? Oh, not with a girl power bit. <laughs> I think you have a girl power moment of the week, and I'm just going to co-sign it. I do. I do. I love Anya advocating for her kink. Can I just oh take God. them home? I'll bring them back yeah. in the morning. You can slap yeah. them together then. Um, I like the way that she mentions it once and then does not give up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, she gets shut down and then just keeps going. She is not letting this go easily. And you know what? All right, because if you have a very specific kink and it shows up, <laughs> you know, you kind of I mean, got to advocate for that, you know? It's my favorite part. My favorite uh, yeah. part is Anya mm-hmm. wanting to have sex with both Xanders because <laughs> hell yeah. Like absolutely. hell yeah. Like absolutely. Um, yeah. No, I, I absolutely love it. I mean, yes, file under things to try on the yes, no, maybe list. Like, anybody <laughs> ever has a blasty? I love it. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I have to I have to co-sign your favorite part. I was like, OK, now I got to find another favorite part. But I just it's it's so great. It's so great. I'm like, nothing comes close to that moment. where Anya. So girl power moment of the week. Favorite part. It's all one thing. It is Anya I mean, advocating for her kink. I love it. The only thing favorite part wise that I think come even comes close mm-hmm. is everyone just being completely like. No, like I candles no. and pretense. <laughs> Giles. <laughs> candles and pretense. Candles and pretense. No, it's absolutely delightful. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to join in, come find us on social media. Lonnie is at Lonnie Diane Rich on Twitter, and I am at Noella Loud on Instagram. And the hashtag is still pretty. This episode of Still Pretty was brought to you by the Chipperish Media Producers who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. These people are the reason why Still Pretty is coming to you free and ad-free right now. So thank you to our March producers. Sarah, Shelley, Kristen, Kevin, Alice, Erica, Abigail, West, and Jonathan. And this week's special message for our power producers. People say they're recycling. They're not recycling. <laughs> to find out how you too can support Chipperish Media, visit patreon.com slash chipperish other ways to show your support write a great review on apple podcasts tell your friends about the show or call riley a talk it's a british expression it means like moron we'll be back next time with out of my mind the fourth episode of season five until then maybe we shouldn't do this reintegration thing right away see i can take the boys home and we can all have sex together and you know just slap them back together in the morning I'm Dr. Paul Moffat of Clockworks Academy, and Lonnie asked me to come on and say a few things about Frankenstein. I shared some thoughts on the Patreon Discord, and she asked me to come and say those, record some of those ideas to share in the podcast, and I am flattered and delighted to do so. So I loved on the Primeval Yoko Factor episode of Still Pretty when Lonnie and Noelle talked about how much Adam should have been motivated by a desire for community. The community 
is also or should have been like constitutive or revealing of his identity. All of that stuff is big in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein right in the middle of the Romantic era of English literature, and one of the hallmarks of Romantic poetry of the Romantic era is its central fixation on the idea of the individual. The Romantic era is a time when poets and artists and musicians are reacting against what they'd seen as overly formulaic, overly dry, overly intellectual. Everything seemed to them to have been restrained and constrained. And the Romantic era is an era of revolution and emotion and emphasizing the importance of the individual who can change the world. So the big figures in Romantic poetry are Wordsworth, Coleridge, Keats, Lord Byron, Percy Shelley, and uh, who am I forgetting? Blake. Poor Blake. I'm forgetting Blake. But uh, in that list, the important ones for Mary Shelley are Lord Byron, who was a friend of hers and of her husband, and more importantly, perhaps, Percy Shelley, who was her husband. So Mary Shelley spends a lot of her time, both her, her reading time and her personal life, around Percy Shelley, who is writing this romantic poetry about the power of the individual who stands against society and does whatever they want to and how brave and good that is. And Lord Byron, who's writing the same kind of poetry and kind of living that same kind of life. Shelley, Percy Shelley was too, but Lord Byron even more is in exile because he's such a uh, individual who's not going to be constrained by society. And that influence was definitely present in Mary Shelley's life. She saw it in literature and she saw it in the people around her. Victor Frankenstein, the character, who, the, the doctor, you probably know, Frankenstein, actually, <clears throat> Frankenstein is the doctor's name. So Victor Frankenstein, who creates the monster, is this kind of romantic hero with a capital R who does all the things that a romantic hero like Byron and Percy Shelley are writing about. Victor Frankenstein embodies a lot of that. He is a genius who is striking out on his own and making his own world and his own life and his own path and not being constrained by convention. And uh, it's bad. And in Frankenstein, that's a bad thing. For Victor Frankenstein to be this romantic hero is a bad thing in Mary Shelley's book Frankenstein. And this subtitle of Frankenstein is Frankenstein, the Modern Prometheus. Percy Shelley wrote a play called Prometheus Unbound. I mean, I mean, and Byron also, and the romantic poets in general, they thought of Prometheus as this figure who represented the romantic ideal. He wants to give fire to humanity and defy the gods because he wants to do great things and be great and he the gods punish him for it and it's the individual being crushed by the power and he fights against them bravely and they uh idolize prometheus and so the subtitle of frankenstein the modern prometheus victor frankenstein is a modern prometheus who is going to give fire to a new species and it's bad. It makes him a bad guy. And the results of his romantic 
individualism are bad. And Frankenstein's monster, too, is a romantic hero with a capital R. He's also, just like Victor, brilliant, he's self-educated, he's insightful, he's powerful, he learns to read just by listening to someone read on the other side of a door, and he quotes Milton, and he is bad. His individualism, these romantic ideals, turn out bad in Mary Shelley's book. Lots of people have noticed that Frankenstein is a very male book, and most of the characters in it are male, and that's it's written by a woman who writes about these men doing their manly genius man things, and it is monstrous. What Frankenstein's monster wants more than anything, what he motivates him more than anything, is he wants community, he wants love, he wants connection, he wants Victor to have been a father to him. And when Victor's unable to do that, when Victor's unable to be for the creature what he wants, Victor creates this thing and then doesn't care for it, that has terrible results. And what Frankenstein's monster is craves is someone to love him, specifically Victor to love him, and when Victor isn't able to give him that, then Frankenstein's monster asks Victor to create a companion for him. And he specifically says he wants someone who is just as ugly as he is, who can be just as rejected by the world so that they can be together. Because for Frankenstein's monster, for Mary Shelley's imagination, being a romantic hero out on your own against the world is bad and not only painful, but it's monstrous and it causes pain and suffering, not only for Victor, not only for his creature, but for all the people around them too. And the way that Mary Shelley presents all these romantic ideals as bad is because Frankenstein, the book Frankenstein, isn't actually romantic. It's written in the depths of the Romantic era, but it's not romantic, it's gothic. And Gothic, Mary Shelley's not the inventor of Gothic. Gothic thrives at the same time as Romantic, and the Gothic literature and art and whatever is the dark side of Romantic. It takes a look at all the same things that Romantic art and literature does, and it shows how they can go wrong. That's all the stuff, right, that Adam on Buffy should have been about. And would have been so much better if he had been. The other thing I said in on the Discord that I'll say here also is Lonnie referenced a part where the monster says friend. Uh, that is a reference to The Bride of Frankenstein, which is a 1935 sequel to Frankenstein in 1931, the movie. Both Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein are directed by James Whale, and star Boris Karloff as the monster. And in 1931's Frankenstein, Boris Karloff's Frankenstein's monster doesn't speak at all. And in fact, Boris Karloff was opposed to letting him speak in the second movie because he thought he thought the creature would be more sympathetic if he was more innocent and he would be more innocent if he didn't speak. But there's a scene in The Bride of Frankenstein where the creature goes and sees a blind peasant in a cabin and the blind peasant teaches him about language and teaches him good and bad and tells him that friends are good. Karloff 
and whale in their movies really play up the creature's innocence and naivety. He's driven in these movies just as he is in the book by a desire for community and companionship above all else. And there's a lot that they change in the movie, but one of the things that I think the movies get really right about Frankenstein's monster is what motivates him. And that's what the creators of season four of Buffy uh, don't get right about Adam, if you ask me. While I'm talking about James Whale and Lonnie, feel free to edit this out. If I'm going on too long, you do a dangerous thing by asking me to talk about Frankenstein because I have literally eight hours of material in a class on Frankenstein that you can take at clockworksacademy.com. Uh, so I could go on and on, but I'm just going to add one more thing because I added it on the Discord and I added it on the Discord because it's so interesting, which is that James Whale, who directed Frankenstein the movie and The Bride of Frankenstein, was out as a gay man in the 1930s. And I think it's dangerous to read too much on creator's biography into their art, but I think it's very likely that James Whale, I mean, I, I can just imagine that being out as a gay man in the 1930s in Hollywood must have had some challenges that must have made a sense of alienation and a desire for community resonate strongly with James Whale. Although I suppose the desire for community resonates strongly with all of us. If you would like to hear lots more about Frankenstein and other courses that I offer, you can find those at clockworksacademy.com. I have been Dr. Paul Moffat. Thank you so very much, Lonnie, for giving me the opportunity to butt into your podcast. Goodbye.